0: where people get things right where people get things wrong do you have to be an energy surplus to maximize muscle growth and the data is not super clear but what is really clear is that being in a caloric deficit in almost a linear fashion inhibits your ability to put on muscle growth instead of just having the 10 grams of protein in the sandwich you had for lunch you took 10 20 grams away from that dinner and had it there that has at least a neutral deposit benefit for muscle growth anyone who's been in the game for longer than kind of their newbie phase with lifting they know that if they want to go through a phase of trying to build muscle and actually gain scale weight, that it tends to be a mixture of both body fat and muscle mass.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. I'm your host, Dr. Joey, nutrition science PhD and founder of Fit for Life Academy. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about nutritional strategies to help you maximize building muscle. And I'm joined by somebody who I've looked up to in the industry for over a decade now, Dr. Eric Helms who is an absolute wizard in all things nutrition and training when it comes to body composition. If you guys are regular listeners of the podcast and you enjoy all of the free educational material that I publish on a weekly basis, all I ask is that you take a second to leave a review and rate the podcast. Hope you enjoy the episode. Eric Helms, how are you, my man? Thank you for being here today. I'm doing well, man. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, as you and I were talking about before the show, It's an honor to have you here. I've been watching your content for quite some time. I had the honor to collaborate with you on a course that we published, um, bodybuilding coaching course for NASM, and we had some communication there. But we've been chatting a little bit back and forth on Instagram, and we scheduled this podcast. And honestly, I feel like a, a little kid in the candy store because. No joke. And it, it's funny. I, I did an episode with Mike Israel and he's one of the people that I've been following for a while too. And uh, I just get really excited to talk to people who I've been following for a while and now have the opportunity to have an actual discussion with them. So from the bottom of my heart,
0: thank you for your time. And I'm excited for our conversation. Well, dude, that's a very kind thing to say. And it's always a privilege and a pleasure to have such conversations. And uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's great to collaborate. And I appreciate everything you do in the industry, man. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Sweet. So do you mind, I know who you are, because I've been following you for a while.
1: <laughs> I would I would uh, hope that a good amount of the audience knows who you are as well. But for those who don't, do you mind giving a short introduction on who you are, what you do? And I would love if you touch on um, the fact that you're a pro bodybuilder now as well,
0: because that's very, very exciting. Sure, man. Yeah. So the, um, I, I think the best way to understand what I do is to understand my trajectory. Was I started as a natural bodybuilder, Got very, very interested in this stuff. Uh, got so interested in fitness that I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I did the natural thing of becoming a trainer. Um, found that this was a life passion for me. And that's the way I started to express mm-hmm. myself uh, artistically. Because bodybuilding, competitive bodybuilding is both a sport and a art. Um, also was always in love with everything related to the Iron game. So I've been a competitive strength athlete since the year before I actually started competing in uh, natural bodybuilding. And yeah, made this my career, Uh, founded 3DMJ, 3D Muscle Journey, Dedication, Desire, and Discipline um, with Jeff Alberts, Brad Loomis, and Alberto Nunez back in 2010, where we started a coaching business and a platform to highlight natural bodybuilding and an evidence-based sustainable approach to it. Um, Found that it was also an intellectual passion and pursuit of mine, and I was getting a lot of... um, attraction, I guess you could say, in my, uh, like the, the attention I was getting, the respect I was getting for uh, information I was putting out, um, you know, on, on the forums and the burgeoning social media scene of the 2010-11-12 era, um, and watched people before me like Dr. Joko Mazzeski and Lane Norton, you know, kind of paving the way with bridging uh, the community I was involved with, natural bodybuilding, powerlifting, and uh, evidence-based practice. And um, decided, hey, man, maybe I can become the chief science officer for 30 Muscle Journey. And I went from being a personal trainer to an online bodybuilding coach full-time in both cases to then becoming a full-time student. And did my master's in the States and then moved to New Zealand where I've been living for 11 years with my wife. Where I did my second master's and my PhD on nutrition and strength and conditioning at Auckland University of Technology moved into that role of science communicator, probably most officially somewhere in like the 2013, 14, 15 range. At that point, I stopped being a full-time coach, focused on my studies and also started writing, not only for academic publications, but also to help try to educate the community that I've gained so much from and that I appreciate. So wrote my books and then started mass monthly applications and strength sport. Now we just call it mass research review. Um, that's been going strong since 2017, where, um, so yeah, via writing or via podcasting, I got Iron Culture with Omar Asaf or actually through still being involved in academia. I'm a senior research fellow uh, at Auckland University of Technology, where I did my PhD and master's, and now I mentor master's and PhD students and help them kind of do what I did, you know, seven, eight years ago. So I basically attract international muscle nerds to come to New Zealand and... Uh, hang out with hobbits and do hypertrophy and nutrition research so yeah what i do is uh, educator coach athlete like you mentioned this whole time i've been competing and at this core central of everything is the fact that i am just an avid athlete and i love bodybuilding and after 19 years of training and 17 years of having the goal i finally actually turned professional in the world natural bodybuilding federation this year i just finished my contest season at worlds on the 19th of november so I'm, uh, I'm in the recovery phase and, and, and feeling yeah. almost human again. It's great. Yeah.
1: Do you mind sharing or letting people know what does it mean to be a professional bodybuilder? Cause I feel like that term you and I understand what it means, but most people don't.
0: Yeah. So in uh bodybuilding, which one could argue is a sport, um, it has <laughs> amateur and professional, uh, divisions like other, uh, sports. And there's, you know, slight distinctions depending upon country and region and sport type. Uh, but in bodybuilding, what that specifically means is that when you go compete in a show slash contest, uh, art sport, um, as an amateur, what you're competing for is attempting to turn professional. And there are some shows which are deemed pro qualifiers. And depending upon the size of the show and the organization, there's different, different stipulations for how you can turn pro. Um, the stock standard one in the U S at an amateur show is that in your division, which might be men's bodybuilding, or it might be figure, it might be bikini, whatever the various divisions are that you win your weight or height class. And then you go on to the overall, where you go against the winners from the other weight classes and height classes in the same division, say open bodybuilding in my cl- my case. So if I win the light heavyweight. Uh, amateur division in a bodybuilding class then I'll go into an overall against potentially the bantamweight, the lightweight, the middleweight and the heavyweight. And then the one of the uh, five of us, if I counted right or 4 math is hard um, not a professional math teacher just a professional bodybuilder um, the one of us who wins that overall will then attain professional status. And if it's a big enough show and it's a super pro qualifier and they have multiple pro cards up for grabs, sometimes the person in second or third or each weight class winner, if the big enough show, can also get pro status. So that's what amateurs compete for. Once you turn pro, however, then you enter pro shows, and what you're competing for in a similar format is prize money, and you get a certain amount of prize money, a very, very, very small amount. So like if you were to win every uh, top-level, international, world-class natural bodybuilding event in a row, um, and you were, you know, God's gift to, to, to bodybuilding, you're probably coming away with maybe 10 to 15 grand in the year and the flights. Oh yeah. In the year. Right. Yeah. And the flights are going yeah. to eat into that. The accommodations going to eat into that. Uh, entry fees are more than $200 and, uh, you know, for, in the pro division, cause you have to pay for the prize money. Your tanning costs money. If you're getting stage pictures, that costs money. Um, if you're flying internationally now, like you basically break, even if you win the show, cause it's uh, you know, grand to fly somewhere. Um, so it is absolutely not something that people really like, it's not like I'm like, Hey man, sorry, I can't do this podcast. Nike's got to it's on the phone with my lawyer and I need to get this, you know, shoe deal going. I'm not, I'm not you know, Kobe Bryant. So, um, yeah, professional natural bodybuilder. It's a, it's a much smaller pawn than even professional bodybuilding at the untested stage, yeah. you know, like the Olympia, your, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ronnie Coleman, uh Chris Bumstead, uh those folks are making factors levels higher of of income when they win shows. Uh and they are making factors less than like professional athletes in more mainstream sports. Yeah. So that that that's kind of what it means. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing. We that. also got to pay for drug tests, Go ahead. by the way. So like You have, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you to get on stage in the WNBF, which I'm fine with. And by the way, it's cheaper, it's cheaper than drugs. So, um, to get on stage, I have to pay, I have to take a a polygraph because the WNBF Mm -hmm. has a 10 year drug free rule and they have a banned substance list. So, the polygrapher goes through the polygraph with you. And to get on stage, you have to be able to pass a polygraph test. And then, if you get pro status, then you have to pass a urinalysis test. Um, And then in the pros, same thing. Everyone who gets on stage, polygraph, any prize money winners has to take a urine test. And there is some limited off-season testing as well. So yeah, anabolic steroids have a a large impact on certain types of performances. And they have a huge impact on actual physiological changes in muscle mass in a dose-dependent manner. So for those who are totally unfamiliar, I'm a six-foot competitor who competes in the middleweight division and I was like 175 pounds-ish, you know, if I was six foot in a professional competing in the, let's say, the equivalent of WNBF Worlds is like the IFBB Olympia, right? In terms of Mm -hmm. competitiveness, it's you could argue that they're both at the top of tested and untested. If I was to be six foot in the open bodybuilding division and good enough to qualify for the Olympia, I would be closer to 275 pounds, not 175 pounds. So, yeah. Dude, those guys are, those guys are ridiculous.
1: I've had, I've only been to the Olympia once and, um, one, it's hilarious that they're all like five, five. Oh yeah. I didn't know that they were all pretty short, but then how ridiculously wide they mm-hmm. are. I always love seeing the, um, the, like, uh, Brian Shaw putting the, uh, award, yes. uh, the medal on them afterwards. It's like Brian Shaw is what, like six ten or something like that. Very, those tall. guys are up to his hip. It's funny. <laughs> Uh, Man, I wanted to say I have a very similar experience to you where it's funny that we end up where we do as professionals. In part, at least due to selfish reasons when we're younger, right? Um, I similarly was obsessed with fitness probably from the age of like 15 or 16. And it was because both of my parents were really into fitness. My mom always went to the gym. My dad would come home from work and like bang out pushups at home. And my dad to me looked like a superhero. So I was like, I want to do that. And so started lifting weights, probably around 16. I've actually never been interested in competing at all, but I love the bodybuilding lifestyle. And so this is something that I try to, I won't use the word preach, but share with the clients that I work with, because I think there's something so powerful about like pushing your body physically that does benefits other aspects of your life that are not in the physical realm, right? And I know you shared, I thought your, your recent episode with Mike Isertal was, was really um, great where you guys just shared your why or your reason behind what you do, what you do. And even though I don't compete, I resonated with um, a lot of what you guys shared. And then when I went to college, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to study. Originally, I wanted to be a music major because I played the guitar and the saxophone and I've always been very into music. And I had a conversation with my mom and she was like, you're gonna be broke if you're uh, playing the saxophone. And I was like, you know what, that's that, that's a, a fair argument. And I can always do this as a hobby. Um, and then so I was bit trying to think about like, what else do I enjoy? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I like exercise and I like nutrition. And originally I just wanted to, I wanted to be a nutrition major to learn about how to just like look better. So I was like, well, if I take these classes, I'll learn some of this nutrition information that like seems to be really important because I know training is really important and I know nutrition is equally important. And so if I learn how to eat and I take these classes, well, I could look better. And that was kind of like the sole purpose, really. And then I started taking biochemistry classes in organic chemistry and started really liking the science of everything. Decided to go into graduate school because let's be honest, you can't do much with a bachelor's degree in nutrition. Um, as a master's student, I was working as a personal trainer simultaneously. And it's funny, I've told this story several times on the on the show. I uh, ended up doing a PhD kind of accidentally. Um, and what I mean by that is I was taking a graduate level course, uh, a vitamins and minerals course, which is just like the metabolism of vitamins and minerals. And the professor who was teaching that course was somebody who I, who I got along with really well. And him and I clicked and he came up to me one day after, after class. And he was like, Hey man, would you be interested in doing a PhD in my lab? And this is how naive I was at the time. I was like, I don't want to do a PhD because school's really expensive. And I've already taken out like $25,000 worth of loans for my master's. And I've only been here for one year. And he was like, well, you're in luck because I can pay you and we can pay for your tuition as well, which I had no clue was a thing at all. And then the rest of history. So my PhD is more in clinical nutrition. And we were looking at the like, uh, disease preventing properties of different foods. So how different phytonutrients can help with cardiovascular disease development and all of that stuff. But even through that time, I was still very much interested on the body composition side of things. It's just this person who was my mentor, who I really respected didn't do that. So then after my PhD, I did a short postdoc, um, with dr michael ormsby at florida state university i'm not sure if you're familiar with him great guy yeah great friend great person um i know him through dr mike
0: zerdos because they they're 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 colleagues okay
1: fantastic
0: did you hear that dr kim passed away recently i did yeah mike made a kind of announced it to the rest of the fau crew and i never met dr kim but a lot of his philosophies were brought into fau um and mike has been a great mentor and colleague to me um Mike Sordo's to be yeah. clear. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so that, that was, that was like, I could see through how much respect and appreciation Dr. Zerdows gives, gave Dr. Kim just how much of an impact he had on him as a mentor. So yeah, I guess we're, we're kind of in that lineage.
1: Yeah. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Cause he was a, a great guy. Um, Dr. Kim was, was awesome. And Mike Ormsby is just as fantastic as well. I wish I had the opportunity to work with him for my PhD, but Thankfully, I worked with him for a postdoc and we're close friends. Now we stay in contact, which is great as well. Um, and anyways, while I was doing the postdoc mentorship, I reached out to Lane, Lane Norton. And I, I um, to be completely honest, I was never really sold on the academic track. And for me, it was more like I love science. I love in theory what an academic position is, but being at an R1 research institute, I saw so much pollution, yes. for lack of a better word, in terms of like what a scientist is or actually does, at least based off my experience. And I saw like how political it was and oftentimes professors don't even get to conduct the research they want to conduct because they're just competing for grants. I was like, man, I don't think this is for me. And at the time I was also, I've always been a big fan of lane and I had listened to a podcast of his that he had released back in the day, essentially talking about like, if you want something, go for it. And so I was like, I'm going to go for this. And I reached out to lane and he's always been really kind towards students. And he answered me and, um, I lived here in Florida, so I came down to Tampa. We met. He offered me a position with his coaching team. So I worked with his company for about three years. And then I recently left about six months ago and now started my own company and
0: doing pretty much the same thing, but on my mm-hmm. own. So that's my journey.
1: So now you know a little bit about me as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. And it's, it's really not too dissimilar from mine. Um, I was relatively well aware of some of the issues with academia. So my entrance mm-hmm. into it, uh, was definitely on my own terms and i would argue that um there's some big regional differences depending upon what the reward structures are and the what's incentivized and how things operate um it's it's quite different in a i would say a beneficial way in new zealand um you you don't have the although it is changing unfortunately like the postdoc trap where You know, your post PhD, you can only get a postdoc and you spend this time where you're supposed to be building your CV, but you're actually just applying for grants constantly and not sleeping and doing the work for professors who are, you know, trying to get students to get their resume built up so they can apply for a grant. And it's kind of this chasing money to chase money without necessarily having endpoints and incentivizing things that will get you the ability to do more Um, that is present, but to a much lesser degree. And there's a lot more internal funding available for small research projects in New Zealand, which is all I'm interested in as a sports scientist, sports nutrition guy. Yeah. Um, And when you have your own businesses, um, you can have a foot in academia. So I actually only have a part-time role at AUT. I work there. Okay. Yeah. I work there 30% of a full-time position is what the on paper, what it looks like. And it's entirely dedicated to mentoring master's and PhD students and doing professional development workshops, guest lecturing, and creating a good student culture in our lab environment at Sprint, which is the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand. So that's the only way that I wanna be involved in academia is basically not doing any of the stuff I don't wanna do and not being beholden or influenced by some of those structures, which like, like I think you accurately said can, or at least to some degree, do pollute the purity of just the pursuit of knowledge and and sharing of it. Um, And it also allows me to get outside of the insular nature of academia to where it tends to be a lot of academics just talking to each other rather than doing a really good job of sharing information. Like the fact that a master's student like yourself didn't actually understand how a PhD operated is an indicator of, of this of the problem and, and that's a master student. If you ask the average bachelor student what a PhD does or what it's for, they don't know. they mm-hmm. don't really get it yeah. you know they, they don't know that research is actually done at universities they just think it's a place to take courses to then go get a job. So yeah the fact that our society doesn't actually understand this other kind of behind the scenes nature of what universities do, and produce research that is meant to change practice in society in every facet you could even imagine um, tells you just how insular the community is and why there's an entire industry for guys like you and I, people like us, to be science communicators and to share information and to bring science to practice. So, you know, I, I, I get it and I relate.
1: Yeah, I'm honestly, when I took the leap into online coaching, it was exactly that, it was a leap, because I didn't really know what it would be. And I'm really happy I did because I, I'm i able to maintain the aspects of academia that I really enjoyed. As you just said, that your main role is in mentoring students. I think that's the aspect of academia that I enjoyed most. Um, as a PhD student, we had some undergrads working in our lab, and I got to mentor them. And it's just a cool relationship, yes. right? Especially if you get to work with people who are eager to learn, they show up to lab early. Like It's a very collaborative environment and it's a very positive environment. And when I decided to leave, I was like, man, I'm certainly going to miss that. But thankfully, working with clients is a similar experience, um, especially if you have good clients. And we know the difference between a, a good and a bad client, right? Um, and all of my clients listening to this, because they all listen to this, you guys are all fantastic clients. <laughs> but jokes aside, it's um, it's still really rewarding to be able to work with people one-on-one at least my personal personality i like to be very social i like to share my knowledge um i get a lot of joy from seeing people improve or get joy and satisfaction from the things that i share with them which i think that's the core reason why i enjoyed the mentorship aspect of academia and then i still get to educate because um I love the research side of things but I also really enjoyed teaching. So for 4 years I t- I taught uh, undergrad courses. I did some anatomy teaching, I did some um like undergrad nutrition metabolism course teaching and I was like, "Man, I'm going to miss this too." But now I have the ability to do it just via a different um avenue essentially. Uh anyways, man, I think we should probably talk a little bit about what we're actually going to talk Let's about in this episode. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, so guys, those of you listening um Eric and I are going to discuss some more advanced nutritional strategies to help you optimize body composition and build muscle mass. And one of the things that Eric and I were talking about before starting the episode is that it's important to understand that these are perhaps more advanced strategies for individuals who are really trying to take their physique perhaps to the next level, right? I'm sure we'll talk about effect sizes or how how big of an influence some of these variables have, but just understand that the magnitude of effect that these variables have on building muscle are likely substantially smaller than some of the main things that we always talk about on the show when it comes to overall caloric consumption, consuming adequate protein, training hard, sleeping well, managing stress, et cetera. Nonetheless, I do think they're important topics for people to consider. If they do want to, you know, if this is a hobby, you enjoy and you do want to take your physique to the next level, or should I say to the best of your ability, right? So I think it's uh, a good idea to start this conversation with the topic of energy balance and discussing the idea of bulking, where
0: people get things right, where people get things wrong, and let the conversation flow from there. I love it. Yeah, I think And I I like the way you frame that because in many ways you get to opt in to how far down the rabbit hole you want to go on these topics. And it's very easy to talk about how do you knock out the big rocks that we know are appropriate and at an early stage when gains come quite easily, so long as you don't do anything that really kind of short circuits the process. Um, And then once you have that down, once you have offloaded that from your active concentration like oh this is really hard new change to my habits once it's just a thing you do then you can go oh i, can, I think i can optimize that a bit and i think we, we can give you a pathway forward there so i don't know if you just want me to jump right into it but I, i'd be more than happy to talk about the role of energy balance for muscle growth yeah let's do so yeah so i i i've written about this a lot and people have been talking about it for ages you know the whole concept of you know you can't build muscle out of thin air which is true um And the nuance to that question though is is a little more in depth than it seems at the surface level. I remember when I first got into fitness, people would tell me, well, you have to be in a caloric surplus to put on muscle mass. Um, And it was a kind of very binary way of thinking, like, oh, building muscle requires energy and, and, and structural components. That means you need to eat eating more energy than you're currently having to maintain weight. But I think a better way to look at it is that being in an energy surplus or not can put some constraints on your ability to build muscle um, because we've all seen, say, The Biggest Loser, where you see someone who is losing substantial amounts of weight, and by the time they get down, it's also quite clear that they've built some muscle in that process. So how did that occur where they were losing kilograms of muscle and water and a lot of other stuff going on for a week, but even in more day-to-day things that we see, like before and afters on Instagram, or just someone we know who started working with a personal trainer, lost 25 pounds, but you know clearly looks more muscular. And you'd think they probably weren't just walking around with that before they started training. So this has been written about as well in the academic uh, world. And I was part of a really good paper in 2019 led by Gary Slater, who's a body composition researcher out of Australia and a great team around him, where we simply asked the question in a review format, do you have to be in an energy surplus to maximize muscle growth? And the data is not super clear, but what is really clear is that being in a caloric deficit in almost a linear fashion inhibits your ability to put on muscle growth to some degree. Um, And the reason for this is that building muscle is an energetically expensive process. Fueling what's called muscle protein synthesis, which is just the construction of new proteins, is relatively expensive energy intensive. The interesting thing is if you were just to take a pound of muscle tissue, that only has about like 700 calories in it. If you were just to actually excise that off someone. Um, And, you know, when we think about fat, you know, the whole 3,500 calorie rule, if you were to figure out like, okay, in 454 grams of fat, if I multiply that by nine, what does that number come to? It's close to 3,500. And the reason why we say 3,500 instead of the higher number is because adipose tissue, fat tissue, is only roughly like 85, 90% actual fat. There's some water in there. So when you do the same thing for lean mass, you think, wow, I barely need to be eating anything and I can put on lean mass, but it's more complex than that. So we see that when someone is eating an insufficient amount of calories and they're in acute energy deficit, there's a lower muscle protein synthesis response to resistance training and potentially eating protein. And when they're also very, very lean, meaning that their actual body fat on them is quite low, we also see an increase in muscle protein breakdown. And the way to think about this is, okay, when I have less adipose tissue on me to fuel body processes, to liberate those triglycerides, to then turn into ATP, to have the energy currency of just doing all the things my body does to do things, including build muscle, that means I have to rely on other tissue. And now I'm sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul if I'm lean and in energy deficit and I'm trying to create muscle tissue. I'm, okay, I need to use body proteins and the little bits of fat I have and glycogen and glucose and the little amount you're eating, but not enough, I'm actually in a net deficit by the end of the day to build muscle. And this is why we see in a more or less linear fashion that energy deficits result in losses of lean tissue in the absence of resistance training, in the absence of protein intake, and they're more pronounced the leaner you are and the larger that deficit is. So there was a recent meta-regression published where on average, and your mileage may vary and it's going to be dictated by a lot of other factors, a 500-calorie deficit, so the standard deficit we often prescribe in nutrition to lose a pound a week, that will roughly nullify your ability to put on lean body mass. Now, this is a meta-regression, meaning thousands of maybe at least hundreds of people are going into this. I don't know the paper in front of me. I mean, some people are able to put on a little bit of muscle mass, some people are not. But what we see is this linear scaling with the, the, the more energy deprived you are, the harder it is to put on muscle mass. Now, the question that is yet unanswered though, is once you get out of a deficit and you're in a net surplus, how much benefit do you get out of being in larger, in larger surpluses? And then benefit is dictated by the goals of the individual. Most people, not all, who are looking to put on muscle mass, want to put on just muscle mass. Um, The unfortunate reality is that anyone who's been in the game for longer than kind of their newbie phase with lifting, they know that if they want to go through a phase of trying to build muscle and actually gain scale weight, that it tends to be a mixture of both body fat and muscle mass. So we try to optimize that as much as possible, but there's multiple factors that go into how much can we optimize it? Um, some people are going to be able to get on that Olympia stage, right? Um, Some people are going to have to work very hard with a coach to even look like they lift. And some people are going to have to work very hard for years with a coach just to get their BMI into the normal range because they are so naturally thin and maybe they don't have the genetic predisposition to putting on muscle mass if that happens to be their goal. Um, So genetics are going to play a role. Uh, obviously the hugest thing here is the efficacy of your training program. Um, I think the best way to view nutrition is that it's permissive to muscle growth. Uh, you will sometimes hear people claim like, oh, this is body composition is 80% nutrition. I would say maybe fat loss is, but ultimately Mm -hmm. if we're talking about building a muscular physique, you are not getting any stimulus to build muscle without actually stepping foot in the gym or doing a calisthenics program or something like that. And the better way to view nutrition is the farming that you provide the seed. Like the seed is training, but you provide in the ample environment where there's the right soil, there's the right amount of water, the right amount of sunlight, and understanding the seasonality of these things is the nutrition. So you are trying to be a muscle farmer when we're talking about putting on muscle mass and the nutritional variables are the optimal combination of those things. So anyway, the big question, and this was one that our lab actually tackled and finally published because it was massively delayed by COVID. Um, we published a study on pretty well-trained lifters in various degrees of energy surplus or maintenance to see if over eight weeks while training three times a week, pretty hard with the intention to put on muscle mass, different size energy surpluses resulted in different amounts of muscle mass gains, fat mass gains, and increases in 1RM strength in the, both the, be, the back squat and the bench press. We weren't the first ones to do this. Uh, and in fact, there have been other studies. And each one of these studies is, often tends to be in sports science and sports nutrition are relatively low sample. They're not so underpowered as to be useless. But when we look across these studies, we can get some pretty good ideas of what's going on. So I'm sure I've, I've, I've monologued a bit, but now we're kind of at that point where we're starting to get enough data to have a good set of indications of what is a reasonably sized surplus, depending upon the context of the individual, which I think is a c- pretty cool place to get to because it used to just be uh, either lean bulk, you know, barely eat at maintenance or just eat a really small surplus if you want to stay lean. And then all the body, but like, you know, the intermittent fasting crowd, like, you know, all, all the different approaches where you're trying to stay lean as possible, but put on just a little bit amount of muscle, uh, the recomp thing. And then bodybuilders going, no, that's trash. You know, you got to eat big to get big and having a very different perspective. Um, And some of that's cultural. Because the thing is, bodybuilders have to get shredded. And while as a community, even non-competitors look to bodybuilders as the experts on building muscle, I think we forget that some of the practices inherent in competitive bodybuilding are not necessarily what's optimal for body composition what's optimal for body composition within the required constraints of competing. And since bodybuilders have to get down to a level of leanness that is directly counterproductive to the goal of putting on lean body mass, they have to go through bulk and cut cycles. So we assume, okay, if bodybuilders bulk and cut, everyone should bulk and cut. And that may not necessarily be the case depending upon your goals.
1: Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout or recovery products make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com and as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast use code joey for an exclusive discount at checkout you can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode remember our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference choose outwork nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights that's a great way of putting it and maybe we can start to get a little bit more granular here so Essentially, there's evidence to suggest that in some conditions or in some contexts, people can build muscle while being in a slight surplus or a slight deficit, I should say, right? And maybe we can discuss what some of those contexts sure. are. I'd love to also share, and I know you discussed some of the limitations, which I would love for you to share, but some of the general findings of the study that you did conduct in terms of whether or not a larger surplus was more effective for building muscle. Absolutely. And what we can perhaps actually extrapolate uh, from that in terms of providing some useful recommendations
0: for the average lifter. Absolutely. So step one, let's talk about body recomposition. Um, Depending upon who you talk to, who you listen to, um, you may have an idea that this is anything from challenging to do to impossible to a unicorn. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting reality, and there's a great paper in the Strength Conditioning Journal uh, led by uh, Chris Barakat, is that In the general population who just starts lifting, and even in many trained populations, you could even make an argument that the default setting is body recomposition. And then the question is, okay, what the heck is body recomposition? And the simplest way of saying it is it's the simultaneous increase in lean mass while losing fat mass, okay? Um, However, there's a lot of things that can masquerade as body recomposition. If you think about it, if I was to gain three pounds, but my body composition stayed the same, hey, I'm still mm-hmm. I'm still 12% body fat, I put on three pounds. I actually gained a little bit of body fat because now 12% of three pounds less than three pounds more is the same amount of body fat. I just had a really good gaining cycle, right? But that's technically not body recomposition. And many cases of body recomposition actually are happening in a deficit because of that huge disparity and the metabolizable energy in, like I said, a pound of adipose tissue, roughly 3,500 calories, but only like a fifth of that is in lean tissue. So if you were to see someone who had no change in body mass, they gained a pound of fat, they gained, oh, sorry, they lost a pound of fat, they gained a pound of muscle, they were actually in a deficit because of how much it takes to, to liberate that. So it's not necessarily about being at maintenance or being in a deficit or being in a surplus. This is all based upon outcomes. When we do research on different groups, what do we see? Did we see an increase in lean mass and a decrease in fat mass? Okay, we're classifying that as body recomposition. And that's actually the default state, especially in people who just start lifting weights. And in the real world, Mm -hmm. where you have someone who follows a good training program and eats reasonably healthy, but isn't intentionally trying to modify energy balance, and they're eating in a relatively equilibrious state in terms of their nutrition, you will often see this body recomposition effect. I think we all experience it during the newbie phase. And I think it does happen when there's a good enough stimulus for resistance training. When you think about it, we're in and out of a deficit and a surplus every day on a regular basis all the time. If you're currently dieting, but you just had a big lunch, you're in a surplus for the next hour or two. We don't have a switch that is on or off. It really comes down to the balance, the peaks and valleys. It's like a bank account. You know, if you know that you have $2,000 coming out of your bank account and you just got paid, mm-hmm. you know, $2,500, you're not going to spend $2,200 of those dollars. Like, oh, I'm fine. I got 300 You know what's coming. You're going to go negative, right? And that's essentially yeah. the way your body operates. So the times when it seems that body recomposition is easiest is when we have more available energy on our body in the form of body fat. Uh, people higher in body fat tend to have an easier time having body recomposition changes. We don't have robust, robust, robust data on that, but there's definitely theoretical models. If you look at some of the work by Forbes, uh, there was a participant level ad hoc meta-analysis that came out of a debate between Eric Trexler and Menno Henselins, which was really cool, that suggested people higher in body fat actually have an easier time putting on muscle mass. Um, And we actually have a fair number of studies. There's one by uh, Demling and DeSantis on overweight police officers, where they gave them a resistance training program they gave them protein and they gained muscle while losing body fat. This is relatively common in people who are higher in body fat where you put them on a resistance training program, you give them protein and it's not a crazy deficit, they're gonna build muscle while also losing body fat. However, the inverse is seen when you start looking at studies on lean people and well-trained people. And it's not that you're more likely to lose muscle mass when you're well-trained, I don't think that's the best framing. A better way to think of it is that the closer you are to your genetic ceiling, the harder it is from where you're at to build muscle. So that means when you start stacking chips against you, you don't have an energy surplus and you have a small deficit. um, Your training program can only be so stimulative. Now, obviously, you're going to look better than everybody else who's a novice because you've spent 10 years training. So yeah, like you're losing some lean mass, but you're not really at a disadvantage to these people who are going to take another five years to even get to where you're at to have this quote unquote problem. But novices, intermediates, people higher in body fat, younger individuals, you know, if you're under the age of 60, and I'm putting a pretty high high number on that, um, those people all have a more favorable environment, lower inflammation level, less quote unquote anabolic resistance in younger people compared to elderly Um, you know, they're not battling sarcopenia in addition to the fact that they're on a calorie deficit, they're all going to potentially be in a better environment for building muscle while losing fat. And like I mentioned in that meta regression earlier, the larger the deficit, the harder it becomes to recomp. The smaller the deficit, the more likely you can build muscle. So another thing to consider is that if you're at rough maintenance and you're slowly building muscle and you're basically seeing no change in body fat, That is also a net positive change in the way you look, which is the reason Mm -hmm. most people diet anyway. So, a lot of the times when someone is not very high in body fat to start, but they want to look better, just giving them the advice of lifting weights and starting training rather than, hey, you should start dieting, can sometimes be the best outcome because it can allow them to build muscle. So, nutrition, while it is permissive to muscle growth, the earlier you are, the further you are from your genetic potential, dotting all your I's and J's and crossing your T's is less important than it is at a later stage if you're really trying to push it further and further. And that's where the question of bulking and cutting comes from and why we did our study and why we had as an inclusion criteria to participate in our study that you had to have at least a year of resistance training experience. For the men, you had to at least be able to squat 1.5 times your body weight, bench your body weight, uh, I Have slightly lower criteria for women, just based upon different proportions of lean mass and fat mass, and they had to be training consistently with these movements on a regular basis. We wanted to make sure that we were recruiting true intermediates, at least in our study. And we had some people who were just meeting those criteria, and we also had actually some competitive bodybuilders and powerlifters in our study of 17 people. Now the reason why we did that study is because prior to that, there was other research. And I think the first one that I want to point out that would make everyone think they need to get a weight gainer and just go mad and go hard is a study by Rosnick and colleagues. And Rosnick and colleagues, they took untrained young men and put them on an eight-week resistance training program to to build muscle mass. And in two of the groups, they gave them a weight gainer on top of their normal nutrition, which was already a reasonably high-protein diet. They're already consuming roughly double the RDA just habitually. In one group, this was a protein and carbohydrate-based weight gainer. The other one, it was pure carbohydrate for the most part weight gainer. But it was 2,000 calories on top of their habitual diet. So these folks gained about seven pounds over these eight weeks. They're gaining roughly a pound a week. And on average, not necessarily every single person in the study, but on average, the amount of lean body mass they gained and the amount of weight they gained was the same. So there was no significant change in fat mass, but a significant and very similar quantitative change in lean mass and total body weight. Meaning that these people gained a pound a week of roughly pure lean mass by just simply feeding, didn't even matter what it was. Hey, have 2000 calories a day additionally on top of your diet of glucose. Boom, I'm getting jacked because you're lifting. So like I said, the barrier to entry is a lot lower for getting things right and being able to put on massive amounts of, uh, of muscle mass. You or I, Joey, there's nothing we can do short of pharmacolo- pharmacological intervention that's going to allow us to gain a pound a week of lean mass for seven weeks. I really wish there was, you know, but, but it's just not the case. We already went to the well. We already had that experience early on in our training career. And, you know, we look back on it fondly. Now, but that study by Rosnick. It's on young males lifting for the first time in a large calorie surplus. It shows us that there is a time and a place for bulking. But then there's another study by Ina Garth out of, uh or probably pronounced Gartha, I always mispronounce it, it's a Norwegian researcher. And in the 2011-2013 period, she did her PhD in looking at different rates of weight loss and different rates of weight gain in elite athletes. Now, elite athletes doesn't mean elite powerlifters, it doesn't mean elite weightlifters, it means elite athletes. So we're talking rowers, we're talking uh, runners, we're talking skiers now some people with a lot of resistance training experience and some with only the necessary amount to support their sport but she looked at a study in these elite athletes who in a national training center were given either guided sports dietitian advice to to go through a lean mass phase or hey on your own modify your nutrition and do this resistance training program to put on lean mass and unlike your typical you know 18 year old bodybuilder wannabe young man who would just eat everything, you know, if if they were given that advice. What that resulted in was a 600 calorie higher intake in the dietitian guided lead athletes versus a smaller surplus, a very small surplus in the self-guided athletes. And the interesting thing here was that after the study was over, while everyone improved in terms of their lean mass and they improved their 1RMs on a bunch of different lifts, basically what they were doing was adding an upper lower four day split on top of their sports specific training which probably had some impact on the results. There was no significant differences between groups in the amount of lean mass gained. And while the fat mass wasn't a huge increase, it was a significant increase only in the group that was getting that a dietitian guided advice. And it was about five times the increase in fat mass in the other group. So it really seemed not to be worth it. And I think it was either jump height or sprint times got worse in the group that uh, had the dietitians because they just increase their body mass more. And it's harder to jump as high or run as fast when you weigh more. So, you know, these are not the only two studies, but I think they're emblematic of the differences. And we wanted to, with our study, to try to fill some of these gaps. So we have what is, quote unquote, a more trained population by Garth that suggests, hey, you want a very small surplus because anything more than that, because you can only build muscle so fast at this stage in your career, is going to become body fat. And then we have the, hey, you need to eat everything in the house and try to gain a pound a week because you're going to put on all lean mass. You know, go hard or go home, baby. And most people are somewhere in the middle. And the truth is going to be context dependent. So, like I said in our study, we recruited these trained individuals, specifically lifters, and we had a similar design um, to Garth, but not exactly the same. So we got them weight stable. We had a dietitian guiding them, um, and then we randomized them to one of three groups, uh, the, the participants we had, either an intended 5% surplus, so 5% intake over what it requires for them to be weight stable, a 15% surplus, or to try to maintain weight stability throughout the trial. Do we even need a surplus? Now, as human research goes, you know, having someone in a 5% surplus, a 15% surplus, or in maintenance, there are going to be varying levels of the ability to adhere to that. And various adaptations that may not have to do with the adherence to what is prescribed. Some people will ramp up energy expenditure in response to a surplus and defend against weight gain much more robustly than others. But this is an example where we basically replicated the online coaching conditions that you and I are used to. You know, you check in, uh, I look at a spreadsheet, I look at your average body weight change, I look at the progression of, of your lifts, and, you know, we were kind of had two, those were firewalled from each other. We had a dietician who was modifying energy intake and macros and helping them hit those macros and energy intakes with practical food-based advice um, to reach these target rates of weight change over time that were group-specific. And then in the gym, we had them coming in three times a week. We would train them in the lab, and they would start every session with a periodized program for squat and bench press. And then they had three accessory movements that we did, bodybuilding style to failure in a circuit, shoulder, back and arms exercise. So three sets a piece go into failure, and then three sets to a, uh, a sub-maximal, but still heavy and challenging squat and bench program to make them stronger, right? Now, like I said, so we're getting people who are having various levels of adaptation and various levels of adherence, but in the end uh, we decided the best analysis with the relatively small sample we had because of COVID of 17 total individuals was not a group-based comparison, but rather a continuous analysis. So I mentioned this multiple regression, you know, meta-regression earlier. Basically, what we did is we just plotted, okay, how much weight did you gain? And then what was the relationship between how much weight you gained with increases in 1RM strength, increases in muscle thickness measured by ultrasound, then increases in skin fold thicknesses at eight different sites measured by calipers. We didn't create a body fat percentage, so we had a very accurate representation because skin folds are great at measuring skin folds. Less good when you then impute that into a, a, a equation to figure out body fat percentage. Mm-hmm. And the relationships we found were actually really interesting. So there was no relationship between the amount of weight gained, at least no meaningful relationship, and changes in 1RM strength on the squat or bench press, nor triceps or quadricep increases in muscle thickness. The strongest relationship we saw, and it was explaining about 50% of the variance, which just means that a pretty large proportion of how much fat mass you saw increases, skin fold thicknesses in this case, was explained by how much weight was gained. So there was a very strong, meaningful relationship um, between the more weight someone gained, the more likely they were to see an increase in skin fold, and. Mm -hmm. That kind of replicates what what, what Garth found. Um, We did find one other very small relationship. And very briefly, I'm gonna discuss some basic statistics. Not really basic, actually, it's kind of a different one. So we use what's called a Bayesian model, which allows you to make uh, inferences based upon probabilities. And one of the ways you can do a Bayesian analysis is what's called a Bayes factor. And Bayes is just the name of the guy who developed this uh, method of statistics. And Bayes factors kind of operate like odds ratios. So when you are looking at the different possible hypotheses, you have a Bayes factor discussing the probability that one hypothesis is is greater than another. So the null being there's no difference of how much weight you gained and how this impacted things. Um, the hypothesis that a higher surplus would result in more skinfold thicknesses had a Bayes factor of 10.4, which just means that if we drew one of these 17 people out of a hat and they, and one of them gained more weight than, than someone else, if we took these two people, there was a 10.4 times likelihood that the person who gained more weight would also have gained more skinful thicknesses than the other random person we pulled out of that hat, okay? So that's pretty strong. That's strong evidence. Compare that to a 1.4 base factor, one-tenth the likelihood, but still in favor. We saw that for skin, sorry, for muscle thickness increases in the biceps. So we did have very weak kind of what we would call uh a weak relationship between bicep muscle thickness increases and also increases in body weight. And it's only explained about a quarter of the variance, meaning that, yeah, this, the fact that you gain more weight, that you're in a larger surplus, it's making up a, a, a sizable but still a minority of the reason why your muscle thickness increased in your biceps. So this gave us an interesting kind of, hmm, like why is this true for the biceps but not the quadriceps nor the triceps? And when you look at the program as we set it up, this is why context is so important when you're looking at these studies. They had, like I said, bench and squat. And that was the only volume where they're doing three sets for each exercise is three times a week. So roughly nine sets of, of quads and triceps per week where they really directly hit those exercises. The other exercises in the program were rows, lat pull downs, bicep curls, and, and a shoulder press. So when you look at the total of volume for the biceps, both directly and indirectly, they're actually getting 19 sets. Sorry, 18 sets, excuse me. So six, six yeah. sets per day. And those are on the accessories where we actually train them to failure. Now, if you take a side step away from the nutritional literature that informed our design, and you look at some of the training literature that can give us the understanding between the relationship between proximity to failure and volume and hypertrophy, we've got studies suggesting that somewhere between 12 to 20 sets for the biceps. On average, this is, you know, your mileage may vary. You might respond better to six or 30, but on average, if you were to capture the largest proportion of the bell curve of the population and see the fastest rate of hypertrophy, roughly 12 to 20 sets for biceps is the volume that seems to be quote unquote optimal. Uh, maybe not optimal for the time investment, but if your goal is to maximize it and do as much work as you, as you can to optimize it, that's on average where it needs to be. And the way those meta-analyses counted volume, and where the studies count volume, is including both direct and indirect work. So counting in equal proportions, rows, lap pulldowns, as well as direct work like bicep curls. So we landed in the sweet spot for volume on average. And again, we're looking at a group of 17 people. So that should be reasonably close to what meta-analyses predict. And also a recent meta-regression that's in preprint by Robinson and colleagues that came out of Dr. Zervosa's lab um, suggests that the closer you get to failure, in a vacuum when holding all other things constant that will also create excuse me a larger stimulus for muscle growth so the biceps mm-hmm. were trained more and closer proximity to the failure than either the quadriceps or the triceps because there was submaximal lower volume training for the bench and the squat and lo and behold that was the only muscle group that had a relationship between weight gain but it was pretty weak so this takes us all the way back to the message of, listen, if you do want to try to put on muscle mass, nutrition is permissive and it's only going to permit what's possible. So when you take a relatively well-trained population like we observe and watch them for only eight weeks, even when you optimize or do the best guess you can at really good programming, the surplus is only going to help so much. So it may be better to take a more conservative approach to your surplus when you're reasonably well-trained. So the general recommendations that I make that I think are, that I think are pretty well-supported by the kind of collection of studies when you look across Rosnick, Garth, and now you know Helms 2023 is that you should scale your attempted rate of weight increase on like your scale weight changes to your experience level. So if you're a novice, there's nothing wrong you know, you're, you've only been in the in, in the in the gym a couple months. And now you're deciding to optimize your nutrition with trying to gain, say, 2% of your body weight per month. However, when you're a little more experienced, maybe you want to cut that in half. You're an intermediate, maybe it's now 1%. Now, if you're advanced, maybe you're primarily just focusing on seeing improvements in the gym and letting your weight just kind of trickle up over time slowly, like 0.5% of your body weight per month. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it accumulates to a lot. So if you are you know, 200 pounds, that's four pounds a month. That's a pound a week, kind of like Rosnick and colleagues. But you're going to run out of that yeah. that 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 honeymoon phase pretty quick. And then eventually you're probably going to be wanting more like, a, you know, half a pound every week. And then eventually even less than that. Um, and if you're a 200-pound person who's gaining 0.5% of your body weight per month, that's still a decent amount um, over time. You know, you clock a full year of that and you're, you know, like you're, you're up a good bit. You're up like 10 pounds. So again, math is not my strong suit. You have to fact check that, but it's, 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 it's a, it's an amount greater than zero.
1: (laughs) That's a fact. Yes. (laughs) You know, there's so much stuff to um, talk about here and Eric, I want to be respectful of your time. So if at any moment you're short on time, just let me know. But one thing I wanted to discuss, you know, I think explaining nutrition as being permissive for muscle growth is a is a a great way of explaining it. Um, In talking first about the topic of body recomp, there are so many things that are permissive towards muscle growth. It's not just nutrition, Mm. right? I think oftentimes when people ask the question, is body recomp possible? Most of the people that ask that question, the answer for them is probably likely yes, right? And I've experienced this even anecdotally with myself where I would consider myself a more advanced lifter. I've been lifting, although recreationally, for over a decade now. And I'd say this is something I've focused on more recently. But when I do go into cutting phases, I realize that I inherently optimize other aspects of my lifestyle that are permissive towards muscle growth, right? So in the back of my mind, I know that since I'm losing weight, training is going to suffer a little bit. And I really care about my performance. So I try to make everything else better. I try to be a little bit more strict with my sleep. I try to be a little bit stricter with my nutrient timing, although we know that doesn't play a huge role. Um, when I'm bulking, I'm sure sometimes I don't hit my adequate protein intake because I'm just eating food, you know? And so I'm a little bit more focused on my food intake. I eat more fruits and veggies, which may help with recovery. And so I'm, I'm thinking about these different variables more than I typically mm-hmm. do because when I'm bulking, I'm bulk, you know, so it, that the the effect of nutrition perhaps masks the negative impacts of poor sleep or what, whatnot. And so I realized even, and I'm going through a short cutting phase currently that at the very least, my performance stays the same. And I've dropped a little over 20 pounds now, which is substantial. And there are exercises where I've still been able to make a little bit of gains, right? Maybe an extra rep here, maybe an extra five pounds there. Maybe it's on the third set out of three sets that I hit an extra rep. But nonetheless, it's certainly not impossible to continue to progress while losing weight if you are optimizing other aspects of your lifestyle that are permissive towards muscle growth. So what I usually tell people is like, hey, if there are things in your, in your lifestyle that you're doing suboptimally, that you know influence your progress in the gym, if you improve those variables, yeah, you might be able to build some muscle even if you maintain your weight or slightly lose weight, right? How many people perhaps have, I don't know, three to five alcoholic drinks a week? You know, simply limiting those, even if the caloric intake is the same and you're substituting for actual food, that probably has a positive effect on overall body composition. So I I definitely wanted to touch on that because yes, nutrition is important for, for building muscle. Training is more important, but there's a ton of other variables that are still important. And if you optimize the totality of those variables, then they might be able to at least provide some benefit to the loss of permissiveness that you're getting from not eating adequate calories. Right. And now on the other side of things with bulking, I've done it all. I've done, uh, do you remember the GOMAD diet? Oh yeah. gallon of milk all day. Yeah. 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 That was probably my, my first experience. And then I realized that GI distress negatively impacts performance. And so I wasn't able to keep that up for long, but, um, you know, on the bulking side of things, it's so easy to go way overboard on it. Um, and it's also easy to not want to gain any body fat because you put in all this work into getting lean. And I think in some circumstances that can be counterproductive as well, because if you currently weigh 160 pounds and your goal is ultimately to weigh 170 or 175 pounds, you have to put on weight, and you're not going to be able to get there in just one cycle of bulking because you're going to put on some body fat, right? So it's, it's difficult to find a medium there, yeah. at least from my experience, one thing, and I'd say this all 2023 and some of 2022 was the most successful bulking cycle that I had. And the reason why is because I simply just committed to bulking for longer than 12 months. I had never done that previously. Oh. I would get in four to six months, feel a little bit uncomfortable, go back into cutting. And I think I never spent sufficient time at maintenance or even in a a slight um, surplus to really build substantial muscle, right? Because at our level, at least I'll speak for myself at my level, it takes longer than a month or two to just put on five pounds on one lift, right? Like if I want to put on five pounds on my hack squat, which is my main quad movement now, it'll take me four to six weeks. And people think that's crazy, but that's how much it slows down. It's like, then you think about how much muscle do you gain if you just add five pounds to the exercise? Probably not that much. You probably need to add 20, 30 pounds to the exercise to see some visual changes in muscle mass. And doing so, if you just do the math, if five pounds takes you two months, well, you have to be in that surplus for eight to 12 months. And so in terms of practical recommendation, what I, tr- what I try to talk to my clients about is like, hey, if you've been lifting for several years and you've optimized these aspects of your lifestyle, at least to the best of your ability, um, and we really want to build muscle mass, it probably makes sense to be in somewhat of a surplus. Now, determining the degree to which we're going to be in a surplus and let's just talk about practically how comfortable do you feel with gaining weight and what would be like the tip of the iceberg in terms of how heavy you would get before you're like, man, this is too much. And then let's just plan to get there in at least 12 months. And that's usually the practical
0: recommendation that I give. What are your thoughts on that? I like that. I think um, for, for anyone who's advanced, I think that's a very good guideline. And that's actually quite similar to my off-season plan right now. You know, yeah. like I came out of, uh, out of Worlds and it's a little different when you're competing in bodybuilding because you talked about losing yeah. 20 pounds and you probably look very lean. And then from that point I had to lose like another 10 to, to get on in stage condition. Right. So you're getting, like I said earlier, as a bodybuilder counterproductively lean. So that means you have to actually recover from that. So like right now I competed around 175 pounds and now I'm in the mid one eighties to high one eighties. That's still lean. Like I, I have quad separation, full set of abs and you know, like people in the gym assume I'm dieting if they see me right now just because I look lean, right? I have bicep veins, all that good stuff. Um, but I'm just now at a point where most people would cut to. So mm-hmm. that is that that process of gaining in a relatively quick period, we're talking seven weeks, gaining 10, 11 pounds, you know, probably half of which is mm-hmm. body fat, um, is was important just to get stabilized and healthy and in a position where I actually could potentially build new muscle. And now from now, You know, basically from now until December 2024, the goal is to put on like another eight, nine pounds, you know? So it's, it's literally less than a pound a month that I'm attempting to gain. Mm -hmm. It's more like, you know, like a hundred grams a week is roughly, it's like a rough, decent target at this stage. Now, granted I'm, I'm 40, I've been lifting for 19 years going, it'll be 20 in May. Um, and I'm, you know, I have extreme goals, but I think... That is, it's very context dependent. You know, if you, if you are if you had a client come to you who they were a, a skinny twenty one year old male who was just started lifting last week, you probably wouldn't tell him Let, let's gain five pounds in the next year. You know, you'd probably say yeah. let's gain five pounds in the next two months. So it is, it's it's definitely context dependent. But I think for people who've been in the game a little bit, very very good advice. I also really like asking them where their their top end is useful from a very pragmatic perspective of logistics and planning of okay, then how long, what size of a surplus when when and 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 what pace do we try to get to that that top end weight, but it also opens the door to when people potentially need a little bit of education around what is healthy you know uh it's It's rare that someone is like, "Oh, I'm only comfortable when I'm you know like you know fifty pounds over and, and my my blood pressure and my my triglycerides are are poor more often in the instagram age and in the whole realm that we operate in it's people who have unrealistically lean expectations and they're trying to hold themselves Mm -hmm. to an unsustainably lean uh, position that requires constant restraint has some food focus maybe requires a little bit low energy availability and kind of on and off status mild reds Mm -hmm. you know which which we don't want so i think sometimes it's a it opens the door to people Recognizing the fact that they don't have realistic expectations as to well, what 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 is what can I do and, and and potentially what negative judgments they have and um and maybe some of the the whole why behind it you know it's much better to have an approach goal to I want to become something more and grow and do this for for healthy reasons rather than like I I don't think I have self worth or I hate the way I look unless I'm lean you know and and that can be an uncomfortable realization, but it's a very important one for someone to have a healthy relationship with fitness. So anyway, that's a whole other topic I'm sure we could talk about another yeah. time. We won't go there, but um, yeah, I think it's really important to understand that top end because then you can game plan backwards and you can try to get there over a longer or shorter periods based upon someone's, um, you know, proximity to their estimated kind of potential, if you will, uh, but more so just how they tick all those boxes. Like, Are you someone who can dedicate five, six hours a week to training? Do you have a Mm four-day, five-day split? Um, Are you someone who's offloaded a lot of these things to being habits? And you can do those deep dives down the rabbit hole and optimize dot I's, dot J's, cross T's. Or are you someone who goes, look, I got two days a week to train. I can train hard for an hour each time, um, but I do want to put on muscle. Then we go, okay, well, you know, the stimulus is is going to be capped and we need to kind of babysit this, 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 this muscle growth, I'm not gonna to try to force feed you because you're only training two hours out of the week, you know, um, so we'll, we'll take a more gain approach, if you will.
1: Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask this question um, earlier, and I just was reminded about it, again, based off what you were mentioning, would you say that perhaps, and I, this is gonna be a little bit of extrapolation here, but in terms of practical recommendations, would you say some of, the, some of the main benefits of being in a surplus and eating more food is that it allows you perhaps to train and recover from higher volumes, which therefore allow you to progress better. So it's not the fact that more food results in more muscle growth necessarily, but the fact that perhaps that more food allows you to train harder or train more in general while still recovering and making progress. And we know that volume and intensity are important variables for muscle growth. So for somebody who wants to perhaps bulk, they better make sure that they're training really hard and perhaps even increasing their volume slightly beyond what they do when they're at maintenance or in a, or in a
0: deficit. Yeah, potentially. I there's a few ways to look at it. And I think it's a, um, it's a two-way street, right? Uh, you could also frame it as, um. Increasing the stimulus of training is what's going to drive growth, um, mm-hmm. and if you don't feed yourself sufficiently when doing that, then that's going to be mm-hmm. less effective, right? Um, the The ability to do a fair amount of volume and train close to failure it doesn't require a ton of calories. You know, resistance training is mm-hmm. is not like cycling. You know, you're not going to bonk in the middle of it, but there is some relationship. Mm-hmm. We actually published a meta-analysis led by my PhD student, Andrew King, that came out uh, last year or the year prior, it might have been 2022, where we saw that resistance training volume performance was positively impacted by having pre-workout or intra-workout carbohydrate. It wasn't a huge amount, but essentially saying that you're able to do more total work when you're in a fed state for training. It wasn't a meta-analysis of the total amount of carbohydrate, and there actually wasn't even a dose response in the amount, but just simply going into training fed or not fed did make a difference, and some of the moderators mm-hmm. which seemed to make a difference were um, how long was the fasting period beforehand, you know? So if you go longer without food, it's going to be harder to do as much volume. So after an overnight fast, you know, if you're one of the people training first thing in the morning, it might make sense to actually have a little something before you go to the gym type of deal. Uh, we also t- tended to see that it was a little more of a larger effect in lower body training. There's nothing magic about the legs. It's just that they're more than half the muscle mass in your body. So going in and do a leg session is going to have a high metabolic cost. Um, so yeah, and we also saw that the higher the volume of the training, the more clear this relationship was. So that directly supports mm-hmm. what you're saying. So yeah, there is definitely something to be said for the fact that if you're going to be at a point in your career where you have to train sufficiently hard or sufficiently voluminous that it's going to be more challenging to do so when you're not eating enough. Um, and either way you want to dice it, either the nutrition supporting the ability to do that that training or the training creating the energy demand where you would need uh, to take it in, you kind of get to the same place. And I think that's certainly a, a fair paradigm and perspective on it but you've also probably noticed that when you're dieting if you dot all your i's and cross all your t's you're not taking an extreme approach you might surprise yourself that you can improve your performance and train quite hard and even sometimes experience recomposition so yeah that's the only caveat that i've had but i agree
1: yeah no certainly and that's a great perspective too you know it's funny because i i like to talk about the research and then share my personal experience too as anecdote right i've noticed I know that lifting isn't very energetically expensive. You don't burn a ton of calories lifting. However, the one thing I have noticed that as I cut my performance towards the beginning of the workout doesn't seem to suffer as much, but I do seem to hit a wall a lot quicker. Like I, I love training. I enjoy training. I like doing my accessory work. I never really want to leave the the gym early, but when I'm cutting and I've done a back and chest workout for, let's say, an hour and a half. And then I'm going to do a little bit of biceps and triceps. Like, man, I really don't want to do the biceps and triceps. You know, it's almost like there's just a little bit less energy available. Um, I kind of just cruise through things a little bit more with accessory work and the excitement isn't there. Now, I know those are very subjective variables and everybody has a slightly different experience. But at least on my, based off my experience, that's one of the things that I've noticed that is a negative impact of being a calorie deficit. The fact that I tend to hit a wall quicker than when I'm eating sufficiently.
0: Have you experienced something similar? 100%. In fact, this last contest yeah. prep, um, I drifted towards a six-day split. I'm First saying that sounds like the opposite of what I'm saying, Eric. But these sessions were only lasting 30 to 45 minutes. So I started coming in more frequently specifically because I knew I had a window of energy before I started to feel like I was dragging mm-hmm. So like my average session length was probably 40 minutes, but I would do it over six days. And now, currently in my off-season, my session length is a little bit over an hour on average, and I train five days. So it's roughly the same total time spent in the gym, um, but it is substantially more volume now, and the sessions last longer. So that was a Something I did kind of unconsciously in 2019 when mm-hmm. I prepped last time, I just found it was it was better. Um, and I had played mm-hmm. with this kind of quote-unquote full-body approach, which really isn't full-body. It's just not limiting myself as to what exercises I can do on any given day. Like if I want to do mm-hmm. some arms after my legs because that's what I need to reach my total volume target for arms for the week, that's fine. Um, as long as it's well programmed. And uh, yeah, so my off-season five-day split became a six-day split during prep. Just because I was like, man, I'm really dragging ass and I like I revise my training every few mesocycles based upon the experience, like which exercises are more time efficient or feel like I can get just mm-hmm. as much stimulus but less fatigue out of it. Um and the answer in the off season and the in season is different. And uh mm-hmm. so I have now two seasons in a row found myself landing uh when I'm no longer trying to train for powerlifting simultaneously on these higher frequency, lower volume, lower session length uh, prep approaches, which seems to work better and allow me to get something approaching what I can get in the off season, but not quite as good, but it is just a, a slightly different um, you know, puzzle to solve when you tend to, I guess you do bonk a little bit during prep, You know, at least it feels like it, right?
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, by the way. And I think we've talked a ton about um, energy balance specifically. Uh, I'd love to pick your brain on perhaps other nutrition related variables that are important considerations. And I think, you know, some of these things are perhaps more important if somebody is trying to recomp Mm. perhaps, uh, compared to eating in a slight surplus, right? So maybe we can quickly touch on it. We don't have to go extremely in depth on each of these, but perhaps protein distribution doesn't matter at all. I know what does the data show? What are some things we can extrapolate? Uh, the importance of pre-workout nutrition perhaps let's touch on those slightly absolutely are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping cooking and preparing your meals i get it time is precious and that's where icon meals comes into play i've partnered with icon meals to bring you delicious macro-friendly and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code Joseph10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast.
0: Don't let time be a barrier to your success.
1: Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter
0: view. Yeah, so the the meta-analysis that I briefly brought up is I think an overall good aggregate data set, but when you look at individual studies, it is the rare study where there's a notable difference in, in specific improvement to having a specific or large amount of carbohydrate pre-training. Uh, a lot of the studies just kind of indicate these days that you just don't want to go into your training um, hungry or underfed completely. Mm-hmm. And the meta-analysis gives a little bit more color to that, indicating like, look, that we don't see a dose response for the amount of carbohydrate you consume, but we do see it as the longer time you've been fasted, the more likelihood you'll benefit from being fed and the more volume you're trying to do. So some of this might have to do with, uh, neuro, n- neurosensory signaling in the in the mouth and the gut, and just uh, the presence of glucose. Um, you know, there's some mouth rinse studies, which actually the minority of them show a benefit for resistance training, but it's pretty neutral to positive for, say, cardiovascular training. So the body has the ability to tell whether it is in a quote-unquote fed state, and you will probably perform better. The if you were in a fed state, especially if you've been in a uh, fasted state for a longer time period, or if you're trying to do a lot of work, even if it is resistance training. Um, the benefits are probably not gonna be there for power or strength, but they might be there kind of like what we're anecdotally describing for can you get all your volume done? Can you stop, can you not start to fall off? And on the mechanistic side, there's been some, uh, I would say, looking at different fractions of glycogen some interesting support that's come out of some of the Scandinavian countries where they go, yeah, total glycogen may only be reduced by 30 or 40%. But when you do say a five by five on deficit deadlifts and a three by 12 on Bulgarian split squats and three by five on, on, on squats in the same session, like your typical strength session with an accessory, even if the strength work is submaximal, we're actually seeing near total glycogen depletion of type two muscle fibers, specifically near the contractile machinery. And we start to learn that it's not just like a gas tank full of glycogen. What we have is glycogen that sits around different parts of the actual muscle engine to fuel different components of activity. And when we're specifically looking at the high power output, high force output, high threshold motor unit fibers that are contributing to these heavy lifts, and specifically the contractile machinery, oh, there is substantial glycogen depletion. So while this hasn't shook out necessarily in the applied research on, and does that impact power or strength, we don't have a ton of studies on people trying to do back-to-back 1RM squats in different states of uh, you know glycogen and in different states of, of feeding. So there's at least a theoretical argument and some actual empirical support, if we go back to that meta-analysis, for why you probably don't want to do all your training in a totally fasted state, especially if you're doing higher volume training which is typically what you're doing when you're trying to build muscle or at least higher volume relative to you. So something to be said for not being on say, like a low carb diet, not that you necessarily can't make that work, but it may not be optimal based upon all the ketogenic versus uh, you know, normal kind of quote unquote diets that we have on balance, they tend to indicate it's a little inferior for, for performance uh, in the gym or at least potentially muscle building. That is not super clear on that and whether it's an indirect effect of being harder to get into a surplus because it tends to be a little more satiating or what. But overall, we have these two kind of areas of research that ketogenic diets tend to underperform when it comes to muscle gain in applied studies and being in a fasted state prior to training can maybe hamper volume performance, especially when you're fasted for a longer period and trying to do a high volume, say, lower body session as an example. So being in a, a relatively fed state, consuming a sufficient amount of carbohydrates, at least something moderate, um, I think is not a bad idea. Maybe somewhere in the three to five grams per kilogram range. you know, at least at least hitting your body weight and carbohydrates unless you're really sedentary is a decent recommendation for people who want to operate in kind of imperial units. And then as far right. as uh, protein. I think the overall protein requirement is relatively easy to hit. We've got now like three or four meta-analyses for both strength and hypertrophy, indicating right around when you're doubling the RDA, like right around a 1.6 gram per kilogram Mm -hmm. or 0.7 gram per pound, is where you start to see a leveling off of any beneficial effect of total protein intake in a day. That's not to say you don't get benefits from lower intake. So if you're someone who's struggling to get from 80 grams of protein to 120, but that's only 1.3 or 1.4 grams per kg or say 0.6 or 0.5 grams per pound. That's still going to be permissive to growth. It's not the best fuel. Like, you know, you can probably get better soil at the farmer's store. Clearly, I'm an agricultural specialist. Um, and yet you might get marginally better improvements moving up to, to 0.7 gram per pound or 1.6 or maybe even slightly higher depending on individual differences. But um, it's still sufficient. So it's not a break point. It is this kind of linear relationship. Mm-hmm. And there does seem to be some data to indicate that you can have too few protein feedings in a day. Um, We have kind of this convergence of evidence from mechanistic research on muscle protein synthesis, which is very messy and probably shouldn't be used as translational research because it doesn't always line up with actual changes in muscle growth, nor even some other mechanistic markers. Um, But then we also have this translational research on uh, time-restricted feeding, or what the internet calls intermittent fasting where once you get into an eight hour feeding window, you seem to be okay so long as you're training in a fed state, consuming sufficient protein, and getting at least three meals with protein in them. But there's enough indications when we start to go below three protein feedings per day, that in these applied studies, it might be inhibiting um, potential for muscle growth. And if you're someone who really wants to dot every I and cross every T, and even dot those J's, like I keep mentioning, You may be at a point in your career where you're willing to modify your lifestyle for a theoretical chance that maybe four feedings of protein per day could be better with potentially having one post-workout and being a faster digesting source like whey. The only time I would say definitely make sure that you have like post-workout protein, kind of like the old school emphasis would be like as soon as you're done, slam, slam your whey protein shake is when you train first thing in the morning and you are in that condition where it is, you know, you've been fasted for longer. And some people do have to worry about, like, how much can I consume if I want to go do a leg day? Like, you're telling me I'm fasted for a longer period, and if I'm doing a high-volume lower-body session, that that's when I should feed. But if I train first thing in the morning, the last thing I want to do is put a lot of food in me and then do go hack squats to failure. Well, the good news is that it's not dose-dependent upon the total amount of carbohydrates. You could literally just have, you know, like, some, some beef jerky and and a banana and go to the gym. Mm-hmm. You know, you got a little bit of sodium in you, you got some potassium, you got your electrolytes, you, you, drink, you hopefully you drink some fluids as well, and you got some carbohydrate. If you're not feeling hungry and you're ready to rock, fantastic, but then once you finish your, finish your workout, you should probably have a whey protein shake, because now it's been 10, 11, maybe 12 hours or longer. Let's say you had dinner at seven and you trained at 8 a.m. It's been 13, 14 hours now since you've had a decent sized protein bolus not a bad idea to get in some whey protein. Um, But outside of that, I think it's more important that you are hitting that total protein intake and that you are hitting uh, it at least in three boluses per day. And then if you want to get it up to four and the potential scenario arises where you probably should have it around training because you haven't had a protein bolus in a long time, that's where I think some of these mechanistic findings might indicate that it's worth thinking about timing. But for the most part, Recent data suggests that there's not really a limit to how much you can cram into one feeding, but there are practical limitations and, you know, I think we are yet to fully explore in an applied large data set. Can you benefit from having, you know, uh, better protein distribution? We have it in small data sets and hint indications. You know, there was one where they got athletes to distribute more of their protein from dinner at lunch and breakfast. And we seem to see an indication of slightly better hypertrophy. The idea being that a large single serving of protein like you might have, if you went to a, like Outback, you know, you had a big ass steak, getting 90 grams of protein in that single meal. It's not that you're wasting away any of it, pissing it away, or it just becomes, you know, farts and thin air, but it might be better if instead of just having the 10 grams of protein in the sandwich you had for lunch, you took 10, 20 grams away from that dinner and had it there, and then also kicked some of your breakfast. Um, on balance that has at least a neutral to positive benefit, most likely for muscle growth. So general recommendation for protein distribution is it hit that that, that that 1.5-ish, 1.6 gram per kg or 0.7 gram per pound target and try to distribute it at least across three, three sessions. And if you have not eaten protein in a while, not a bad idea when, after you train to have it there. And at the very least, it's a good opportunity to remind you to have some protein is when you just trained. Um, and then you probably want to go into especially fasted sessions that are higher volume with some amount of food in you, but still giving yourself enough time to digest. That meta-analysis was had people consuming it intra-workout, but it's also as early as two hours prior. So your digestive rate uh, mileage may vary. I personally don't eat in the two hours before I train. It's typically like an hour and a half. This is the latest I'll eat a, a meal, and that's only if I have a relatively easy session to do. I prefer to get in a meal like two hours out.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. You know, I was laughing about the uh, protein, um, what you were saying in terms of having like a a huge steak for dinner, because I was just thinking about a client that I recently started working with and we just had our first introductory call fairly recently. And he's somebody who struggled to consume adequate protein. And uh, for the day, he was probably consuming around a hundred grams. And let's say that based off his weight, um, he should probably be at least around 170, 180 grams per day. And so I had this conversation with him and he mentioned that he was going to start working a little bit more on protein and great. And then uh, we did a a food recall uh, where I I asked my clients to send me visual images of their meals to give them feedback. And we just went over that this morning and he consumed 100 grams of protein at breakfast. And I was like, A for effort. Thank you for trying your best. We definitely don't have to go to this extreme. It's just funny. um, The the things that people, I guess, go through psychologically. Like, I'm not eating enough protein. I'm going to hammer it in every single meal. Um, Nonetheless, the topic of peri-workout nutrition. I I like talking about this topic because I think it's gone from the extreme of like probably what, 10 years ago or so where like post-workout meal was the most important Mm -hmm. thing in the world to perhaps the other extreme where. Some people say it doesn't matter at all. And I know based off the evidence we have, like, it probably doesn't make a big difference, especially if you're covering uh, the big variables, right? Overall food intake, making sure you're not training fasted, total protein intake. That being said, what I always like to say is that there is not going to be any harmful effect of trying to prioritize food as close to the ending of a session as possible, right? And perhaps maybe a very small benefit. And I go, I know that this matters more to people like you and I that want to optimize every little thing, right? And sure, maybe you can train pretty well if you haven't eaten much an hour and a half or two before training or it's it's been several hours before that, but it's, well, I guess pre-workout nutrition, there's more evidence for its efficacy than post-workout nutrition. But I really don't like when people think dichotomously of it's the most important thing in the world, or it doesn't matter at all, right? When it comes to peri-workout nutrition, if you can prioritize it, it's not going to be harmful. So at the very least, you know, maybe try to eat in close proximity after training, maybe try to evenly space out your protein to the best of your ability. Definitely don't train fasted. Um, And maybe you'll gain, I don't know, half a pound of muscle over the next 10 years that you wouldn't have. (laughs) Uh, the effects are certainly small but anyways man i appreciate you a ton eric thank you for your time i wanted to ask you one more question and this is a personal question because i like omar am team no calves um the difference is though that i train them pretty damn hard they're very resistant to growth so i wanted to ask you personally have you been keeping up with the calf stretching protocol that you mentioned you were going to do
0: the stretching no because it is uh, incredibly okay. painful and inconvenient using the orthotic device. It takes two hours unless you get two of them per day that you do it. However, I have kept up with including uh, intra-training stretching. So at the bottom of each rep, okay. I'm going into as deep a dorsiflexion as I can, and I hold it for two to three seconds. And then when I finish a set of calves, I sit there, after I've reached failure almost every single time, in the more dorsiflexed position I can, loaded, And I try to hold it for around 10 seconds. So, uh, and then I occasionally will just do some stretching on the days I train calves, just holding it for a few minutes. Um, And I, my calves, I will say, they're currently the biggest they've ever been. So I've at least maintained what I got out of that stretching protocol, which was a small amount. Um, For those who are interested, who want to follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram, I'm going to be putting up. Um, some professional shots that I did the day after Worlds. And I think it's where you can most clearly see that, that my calves definitely improved from prior, prior years. And into that amalgamation was you know more volume, more intensity, training more frequently, training harder. But also there was a three-month period where six days out of the week I was stretching myself an orthotic device for an hour, um, which I didn't see a regression from. Let's put it that way. I think I was able to at least maintain that little that little boost. Will I ever go through another period? We'll have to wait until that PTSD subsides. Because I'll tell you, your your foot and your ankle and your uh you start to go numb and get tingles like twenty minutes in and you're like, Sick. I've just got another forty minutes to go and I'm already in intense pain. So it was definitely a grind to get through that protocol. So
1: Dude, I commend you for even doing it for longer than a day. <laughs> An hour, an hour is a big commitment, especially for each leg. Yeah, I can only imagine that sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Well, listen, if you uh come up with any magical calf growing protocols besides like uh,
0: very hard things that suck, yeah. (laughs)
1: Please, please share it with me because I'm struggling over here. I got you. Anyways, all jokes aside, Eric, would you please mind sharing where people can find you? I know you mentioned your social media handle, um, but podcasts, business, please share.
0: Absolutely. So if anyone wants to do deeper dives on the science, um, definitely feel free to check us out at massresearchreview.com. That's where you can get a subscription to me writing about this and doing videos and audio roundtables with my co-authors on everything related to putting on muscle, body composition, change, etc., gaining strength. Um, my books are also going real deep dives on both of these topics, nutrition and training for muscle growth and strength. And that's the muscle and strength pyramids.com. Um, and they're also available on Amazon. Um, finally, if you're, if you're interested in the whole bodybuilding side of thing and you want to get a little more serious in this and potentially get guidance from competitive natural bodybuilders, 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, letter D, musclejourney.com. And we also have courses for, for bodybuilders. Uh, we have podcasts, the 3D Muscle Journey podcast. And then I also, I talk science at least a third of the time with Omar and my fellow co-host Eric Trexler over at Iron Culture, where we talk about the history, science, and culture of lifting, which is available on all podcast platforms. And you can hear from strong men and women competitors, powerlifters, weightlifters, exercise scientists, nutrition scientists. Cultural icons, um, historians of lifting the whole nine yards. We, it's all things, Iron Game, all the time on Iron Culture. So yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. All right, brother. We'll catch up soon. Thank oh, you, man. Thank you.